Hey everyone, welcome back to Sacred City Vision Drip. <laughs> How do you like that? A little sound effect action for you. Listen, we are back today. Uh, this is part two of of the uh, the pod. <clears throat> excuse me, the podcast that uh, is called "How Can I Trust the Bible." And uh, today we're we're gonna just kind of press into some of the common up objections that you might hear when you're talking to somebody, a non-believer, skeptic about the Bible, why we can trust the Bible, why we rely about it. These are gonna be common things that you hear as rebuttals or accusations against the scriptures. Um, and and there's a couple reasons why I want to talk about this. One, I, I want you to know why you can have confidence in the Bible personally, like why you can have a great hope and assurance that God's word is what it is, that it's reliable, that it's it's sufficient for all things in salvation and in life. So I want you to have that. I want you to have that basic confidence, Christian confidence in the word of God. But two, I want you to be able to think apologetically. Like I want you to be able to think like a missionary, to be able to to be able to unpack uh, people's presuppositions that they come into with the conversation like this, to poke holes in it and show these double standards that are often at work um, in these kinds of uh, uh, of of um, objections to um, the Bible and why people tend to push away from it if if they are not Christians. Again, this conversation is sort of sparked by uh, a book that I had recently picked up by by James Finke um, called The Bible Uncomplicated. It's a, it's a great starting point for working through this conversation of like, how, how can we rely on the Bible? How do we know that we can trust it? Um, and so I would say if you're, if you're wanting to, to dig in more, this is an easy read. It's, it's a quick read, um, and there's a lot of pretty helpful information in here. Um, and so I want to tackle the first uh, objection that he lays out, and that is that um, we cannot trust the Bible because it's full of so many errors. That that's something that you often hear um, from people. It's like, yeah, well, you know, maybe maybe God did uh, inspire the scriptures, but ultimately it was written by sinful people, and sinful people make mistakes. And so we have no way of objectively knowing that these sinful men didn't make a mistake when they were taking what God said to say and then writing it down. And so th- the idea here is that, man, you know, okay, I'll give you, I'll concede to the point. That that maybe maybe it's inspired by God, um, but it's not uh, it's not inerrant. That there are actually errors in it, and and I actually think that this is one of the most um, common uh, common uh, acts of this is as old as Genesis chapter three, where where um, the enemy the serpent says, you know, did God really say? Right? There's this this doubt of God's word. Um, it's a question of man, did God did God say this right? Did he really say this thing right for you? Um, and so I think it's just another play on, on that kind of mentality. Um, but, but here's the deal: in order for you to claim that the Bible is full of errors, you have to know what the correct version is supposed to be. Like if now the only way for you to know if the Bible is correct, is to know the mind of God, <laughs> like to, to know what God thinks. And, and one of the things that scripture makes clear is that our thoughts are not God's thoughts, that his, his thoughts are so much higher and loftier than ours. So there's no way for us without, without revelation, which the Bible is God's revelation to us. Um, there's no way for us to know the mind of God. There's no way for us to know the correct version. And so this this argument often comes from like a um, a preferential state. So it's like somebody says, well, this sounds wrong to me for whatever reason. I don't like it. Um, it doesn't sound right to, to my modern sensibilities, um, whatever, whatever that thing is. Um, and so I, I don't 
I, I think it's wrong. Okay, so that is is a subjective assessment of what uh, what an objective truth. What we're saying is objectively God's word, um, and so people who make this objection, it's really quite a silly objection because it, it, it's. In order for it to be true, it requires you to know exactly what the correct version should say. And and, and while we don't have any of the original um, documents of of scripture, so we'll say, okay, um, do we have do we have the originals that you know the Apostle John wrote on or uh, the Apostle Paul? We don't have any of the original manuscripts, but listen, we have droves and droves of of the the duplicates um, of the of the like coming on the, the hand copied, um, carefully meticulously copied duplicates of the originals that, and, and a lot of them. And so we have more manuscripts and we have earlier manuscripts of the Bible than the next best 10 pieces of classical literature combined. There's so much, um, there's so much out there, um, dating very early in the church. So late first century, early second century, um, of, of these duplicates. And so there's a lot of data that allows scholars to reconstruct, and this is the textual criticism, um, to reconstruct the original documents easily. Um, and, and so we can figure out what the original was said with great confidence. And, and so with those original manuscripts, we're able to, to sort of reconstruct, like to, to get back to the, um, and, and this is not like a, a reconstruction of uh, based on our preference, but using what's already there um, in these these copies to kind of get to um, the common thread. What are, what are all of them saying? Uh, th- there's another thing that we can go to, because um, not only have textual scholars um been able to sort of sift through and get to the original manuscripts. One of the things that we have to realize, okay, there is a, a, a degree of error that can happen with these replications. We don't say that that the, the replicas of these manuscripts are inerrant because uh, it is possible for a scribe to make an error, a misspelling, a grammatical error, um, to, to flip words, which are instead of saying um, Jesus Christ, saying Christ Jesus, you know, th- things like that that are would be considered errors or 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 some something slightly off or, or inconsistent with other documents. Um, but these these so-called errors are strictly grammatical. It's said, it was at one point said that there were 150,000 copying errors in the New Testament documents alone. So just, just in the New Testament, 150,000. But, but when you see what those errors are, they're strictly grammatical. It's like punctuation and spelling and, and a flippy floppy of words. And so these errors really are not one, they're not they don't change anything of substance, um, and they're spread out amongst 5,700 manuscripts. So we have a lot of manuscripts, and so if one letter of one word in one verse is wrong in 2,000 manuscripts, that's counted. It's Though it's the same error, it's counted as 2,000 errors. So these numbers are juiced. Um, this this isn't an actual portrayal of, of what's actually considered an error. Um, it may be, maybe in like a, a typeset error. And, and of course, you know, like I said, these manuscripts are hand copied. It wasn't until 1455 that, that we have the ability to print Bibles. And, um, you know, and even when you have print, they're still misprint. I, I had a book I was reading the other day. It's actually the book, <laughs> this book itself that, uh, that uh, James has written has a couple of misprints in it. Um, and so it's like, you know, even because it's printed doesn't mean you can't make a mistake, but, it, but these mistakes are, are usually grammatical spelling or punctuation or something of that that nature. But there's another facet to this um, is that 
not only do we have the manuscripts, but we have we have the the writings of early church fathers, um, guys like Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, guys that were like, you know, uh, that that were just all in on the Bible, and they copied the Bible, and they wrote a lot about the Bible, and they quoted the Bible a lot. If we use some of these early church fathers' writings, we can we can reproduce all but 11 verses of the entire New Testament only using the writings of the early church fathers. So here you have it. It's not far down the line chronologically where you have these early church fathers that are, are copying, that are quoting scriptures, and there's continuity between them all. They're, they're using the same source text, and you can see this in their writing, their quotations of this. And so you can see that, man, not only are the manuscripts verifying what um, what the scripture says and the consistency, even with the, the so-called errors, um, you have a lot of the church fathers who are also validating what the Bible says and showing that, that the consistency of the text. And so what we can see too uh, is that the textual textual scholars have confirmed that not a single one of the 150,000 alleged errors affects an article of faith or a precept of duty, which is not abundantly sustained by another and undoubted passage or by the whole tenor of scripture teaching. So what it's saying here is like, there are no major anomalies. There, there, in the errors, there are not any major anomalies that that make us um, have a lot of question about what what the Bible actually teaches. Because the Bible is is a self um, self validating document. That that even you know, like you you hear the Apostle Paul say one thing to one people. You know, in, in one epistle he says this, and you hear him say almost the exactly same thing to somebody else. And so we can say, okay, well, there's clearly um, some continuity here between that. And so the bottom line of this whole thing about, um, you know, like what is the error percentage of the Bible? How, how, how reliable is it? Are there actually errors in it? We can know with 99.5% accuracy what the original New Testament document said. And the 0.5% that, that is kind of in question doesn't impact any doctrine of the Christian faith. And so we can have great confidence in in the inerrancy of scriptures that it is, it is in fact, uh, true. Okay. So, uh, I spent more time talking about that than I wanted to, but I I think that's really important. Um, I think the two major things that are always under attack are the inerrancy of scripture and the sufficiency of scripture. And, and I think probably today more, more so the, uh, the, the attack is under the efficiency of, of scripture, that it, that it actually is sufficient efficiency. I mean, the sufficiency of scripture, it's sufficient for all matters of life and salvation or life and salvation. So moving on to, to the next argument, he says, but the, the Bible, we can't trust the Bible because it's been translated so many times. Um, it, it's been replicated. It's been, um, there's been this, and a lot of times the idea of this is that it just comes from a, a, a naivete or, or an ignorance of, of how the Bible translations actually occurred, like how we got to this. And we do certainly have a number of translations, like, um, you know, you know, You've got the ESV, the NIV, the New, the King James. You've got, you know, all kinds of different translations of the Bible, and and even to get to that point, even to get to an English Bible, there has to be all kinds of translation that takes place. So you have to have somebody that knows the original language, whether it be be Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. You've got to have them know that, be able to synthesize the information. You have to they have to be able to bridge the gap to the next language, whether it be you know Latin was those you have the Septuagint. Um, that was one of the first translations from from the originals to um, Latin, you know, and and so some of that 
from Latin to English, but then now you've got scholars who can go from the originals to English. And so there is a translation. So any, any Bible that you pick up that's written in English, you have to realize somebody, somebody had to do some work in order for me to get this in order for me to read this and actually be able to, to know what the words say. Somebody had to do some background translation for me. And we ought to give thanks for, for the men and women who have contributed uh, to the, to the deep study and scholarly work that they do to compile um, the scripture that we have, the translations. Um, but, but we need to not think of the translations as like a, a broken um, game of telephone um, where it's like, you know, people, you know, one thing says here and then, and then that, that message gets diluted in translation. It's like, we, we have the ability to, to translate things um, very accurately um, so that, that it is intact. Whatever language you are reading the Bible in, if you've got a good Bible translation, um, the original message is intact. And so there's not this delusion of diluting of, of the message. And so it does us some good to actually know how this process works. When, when Bible scholars are translating the Bible, they're not, they're not uh, editing the most recent translation. Um, it's not that like development of that new idea. What they're doing is every time a new translation is done, they're going back to the original documents, the early manuscripts, and they're working with the original texts. Okay. So, um, an original early manuscripts is what I mean. So, um, we, we've got to understand that that's how the translation process goes. It's not not crazy. Now, the next thing is, uh, this kind of ties into the the first part about the errors. You know, it's like, obviously, um, the, the Bible um, errors, it's written by man, man is sinful, you know, all that stuff. But one of the things that they claim is just like an outright denial of, of trusting the Bible because it was written by a man, because, because men wrote down words. Now, there there is an inconsistency here. Um, because they don't apply that logic anywhere else. They, they base, so like reliability is based on whether or not man wrote it yet. They'll, they'll read instruction manuals on how to build a bookcase. Right. And, and they find those to be reliable functionally. And so like, this is something that people say, okay, well, the Bible's not reliable because man man wrote it. It was a man who wrote it or men who wrote it yet there's all kinds of other things that we do find reliable that are also, um, been, have been written by men. So, so we have to realize that, okay, yes, men, faithful men wrote the Bible. They, they wrote it down, but God inspired them to write down exactly what he wanted them to do. Yet he did it without violating their personalities. And you see this in the epistles specifically, how, how, like when the apostle Paul's writing, he's not writing like some sort of vanilla, like, um, you know, like his personality has been wiped or something like he, he has a real personality. There's something real about how God has has channeled His Word through a real man and used some of His His personality to to come out in that. Now, another piece that I think points to the fact that God is the one who's behind the writing of the Scriptures is the fact that the Bible is such a prophetic book. There, there's a lot of prophecy um, in in the Bible, uh, and much of it. Um, not all of it, but much of it has been fulfilled. We're still awaiting certain pieces of the prophecies to be fulfilled. Now, um, P- Pastor John MacArthur says this, you can't find any other religious book in the world that has as well attested and accurate fulfilled prophecy. Okay. The Bible s- scholars cite 1000 prophecies in scripture. Many of them have already been fulfilled. And so there's the sense that, okay, I, I don't know. There's, there's to think of this 40 different I, I'm, I'm not all of all of the writings are prophetic, but to just say there are 40 different authors in 66 different books of the Bible. 
um, and, and there's a lot of prophecy in them. And there is a considerable amount that has already come true as it said it would be, you know, and one of the most, most clear ones is, is the fact that Jesus came in the manner in which he came to. So as an ordinary man can't predict the future, at least not to that degree of, of consistency. Uh, and this shows that, that God is the one who's writing the books. It's not the people who, who are, are writing the books and, and have this like crazy ability to, um, you know, predict the future just in their own uh, logic. It's God who has given them. He's given them the insight to what's going to transpire because God orchestrates history. Then these things actually um, become true. Now, another another argument he deals with is, is talking about the, uh, it's a criticism of scripture. And, and I don't think that this one is as popular, but I think it's really important to, to kind of put our eyes on is that um, that the Bible is has been hyper edited? So the Bible has been, you know, we, we pointed out the consistency of Scripture: sixty six different books, three different continents, three different language is forty different authors through fifteen hundred years uh, a time span of, of it being written. And what they say is, okay, well, the only reason that we can, ha- you know, we put that forward and say like that that's interesting is because somebody, some some overzealous monks, um, locked themselves in some underground lair and, and secretly edited and um, changed the books of the Bible to have such consistency. Now, uh, one of the things as I, as I preach, um, you know, and my ministry is, is seeped in the word, um, I cannot get over the genius of scripture. I can't, I mean, like I talk about this in terms of like individual books of the Bible where like for the gospel of John, for example, the way that he thematically weaves things together. It's like, I don't think I don't know anybody in their own natural mind could think that way. Um, maybe a few people like, like Tolkien or, or C.S. Lewis, you know, they have this crazy ability to see themes weave in and out. So uh, I'm not saying that it's totally impossible, but here's the deal. It's one thing to do that within your own work. Um, you know, like the Chronicles of Narnia, how C.S. Lewis can sort of weave things in and out, um, themes that he runs through all the whole entire series. Like he knows that he, he's he's done that. That's his work, and he has the 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 power to sort of orchestrate that in that way because it's his work. But the thing about the Bible is, again, forty different authors, sixty six different books, people who had never met each other before, yet there's this continuity across all of all of the entire plane of time of space and cultures and and, and here um, they're saying well some some monks could edit it it's just it's just a fanatical idea nor for this theory to be true means that people had to be incredibly secretive and successful at maintaining these quotes uh, or and maintaining the, this this theme so it's like okay let's say we, we entertain this idea in order for this to say, stay true. Like in order for this, it it would require such a conspiracy that, that would, it would be impossible. It it is so far away from reality or being, being even plausible that that cannot be the case. It's simply fiction. Now, uh, Another sort of uh, derivative of this objection would go something along the lines like um, the books of the New Testament were chosen until the fourth century in the church councils. Now, um, I believe what he's speaking about here is the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325. 
Um, it was the first ecumenical council that that shortly after uh, Christianity was was labeled as a tolerable um, uh, religion uh, within the Roman Empire with the Edict of Milan that was in thir- 313 um, AD. The, the people, the, the church leaders were able to get together and to hash out some of the debates that were going on in the church. Um, and, and for some reason, there's this misconception that, that one of the things that was nailed down was the, the books of the Bible. And then the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with determining or choosing the books of the New Testament. Um, that, that wasn't at all the thing. And, but, but for some reason, due to the popularity, I think of, of like the Da Vinci code and, and some sort of revisionist history, a lot of times that's what people think. Now in, in that council, um, there was the acknowledgement of the books that have always been viewed as the scripture of the letters that have always been viewed as part of, of the new Testament. So there was consensus on these things, um, way before even the, the, the council of, of uh, Nicaea took place. So that we have to see and understand this, that and I see the books of the Bible weren't being chosen. It wasn't like there was like a buffet of them and they went through and picked this, this, this one, this one, but leave those couple out. The, the church had already, for the last 300 years, already was operating according to what they knew the scriptures were, what canon was. Uh, and what you saw in this council was that they were using those scriptures uh, to argue against the nature of Christ or for the nature of Christ. Um, they, were, they were using those scriptures. And so that's a lot of the time the confusion about that. So it's not these overzealous monks or the early church fathers who are deciding. It was already based in Christ, the way of Christ and the apostles that was handed down. Um, and, and so this brings us to, I think, what is the final final one of the objections? Well, uh, there's two more. Um, well, three more, actually. And, and they kind of all wrap up. But I think that this is, this is one of the most important ones. It's when people say that the Bible is full of contradictions. Um, and it's like um, you, you, they use passages, um, like in the gospel accounts, that, that differ slightly um, to, to suggest that, okay, because they didn't say exactly the same thing, um, there's contradictions, there's something way off. But, but the reality is, um, there, it's like, um, there's a book called, or a book, uh, a movie that I think is called Vantage Point is about like a, a crime that happened and, and you have, um, the vantage point of like, you know, five or six different witnesses. I haven't seen this movie in years, but, but I remember seeing this movie and being like, oh, that's a perfect example of, of what's going on with the gospel accounts of, of you have people seeing the same, uh, instance, the same, uh, scenario from different perspectives and they have a different take on what happened. Um, but they're all testifying to the same reality. So one of the historical examples of this is with the Titanic where they, after, you know, there were so many survivors that, that made it through, um, and they interviewed almost all of the survivors asking them what happened, what did you see, what was going on? And all of their, all of the accounts said, okay, well the ship sunk. So that that's true. We know that we have now we are able to verify that, but the manner in which it sunk, there was debate about, well, did the ship split in two or was it, um, was it in one piece as it went all the way down? There, there was some disagreement about what happened there and it was based on vantage point. Now, because we have contradicting or so-called contradicting um, eyewitness accounts doesn't mean that that it didn't happen or that that um, they're all wrong. It just means what what they saw. There was a limit on what they saw, and they're giving an account of what they saw with their eyes. So one of the things that you know this is kind of a nerdy police thing, but investigative experts, like if you're a detective, um, multiple independent eyewitness rarely ever see all of the same details and will never describe the event in the exact same word. So 
So if you were to have um, people like saying the exact same things, what, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, a detective's interviewing a bunch of people um, who are so-called witnesses, and they all give like the same exact answer, same words, same verbiage, um, same, you know, exact same thing. Um, doesn't that sound a little fishy to you? Would, wouldn't there be a little bit of variation on details? And it's these minor details that actually um, point to the validity of these eyewitness testimonies um, because these divergent details actually strengthen the credibility of the eyewitness testimony. And so it, it's going to make sense that that Matthew's gospel is going to have a few details that Luke's doesn't and Mark's doesn't, that, that John is going to take a different perspective because all of these gospel accounts are written with a specific uh, target in mind. For example, Matthew, um, he writes for, for the Jews. He, he's writing for the Jewish people so they would understand that Christ is uh, the fulfillment of the Messiah. Luke's gospel is going to give this very detailed, he's very meticulous in his, his details. And the point of his writing is to be as as orderly and specific and provide chronology and history as things unfolded. So John, he, he's focused on evangelism. So all of these uh, gospels have different target audiences. They have a different intent. Um, and so there's going to be a, a bit of variation, but all of them testify to the same reality, that, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death, and he was raised on the third day. All of the details you know, there might be little details that are off, but all of the main things stay intact. They're all saying the same thing. So it's not a bunch of contradictions. As Christians, one of the things that's going to help us um, to to understand and to be able to refute what people are, are calling it contradictions is actually having a very good understanding, like a good understanding of the story of God, like the meta narrative of scripture. So like, for example, it's like, okay, you know, like if, um, you know, in the Old Testament, God said he needed sacrifices. Well, why don't we give sacrifices anymore? Well, you know, like it, it's, it's a, that seems like a contradiction to me. That seems like, you know, that um, so, something's off with that. Well, w- w- there is a change in that. And it's not a contradiction. It's that Christ was the once and for all sacrifice. So no longer are, are the offerings at the temple necessary. Jesus has fulfilled them. And, and so there are things like that, man, that people are going to point to and say, well, that's, that's not true. That's not accurate. It's like, well, no you're wrong. Like you don't understand the meta narrative of scripture. And so let me educate you. So then, okay. And then here gets into the last couple. And I think that this one's actually pretty important too, um, that, that you find, and this really revolves around the offensiveness of the Bible. Like people are just like, Oh, the Bible is so offensive. It doesn't fit our modern day sense sensitivities. And it's full of violence. It's just full of genocide and it promotes slavery. And, and so like all of these things, like if you start actually doing like legitimate intellectual work and, and studying the scriptures, you can understand um, that uh, one, like for example, slavery uh, as what the New Testament talks about is, is different than chattel slavery that, that we had here in the United States, which actually Christianity um, was responsible for for destroying, right? It was, it was Christian ministers who were leading uh, the the act for, uh, well, just based upon the Imago Dei, that that regardless of your skin color, you are made in the image of God. And so it's a Bible that actually led to uh, this, the dismantling of scripture. And, and people oftentimes don't realize that um, you, you get people that say, well, the Bible has like a low view of women, right? It says, it says, well, her, the wife is supposed to submit to the husband. And it's like, she gets treated like a second class servant or, you know, like it's, there's a lot of, I mean, especially in this day and age, right? You want to talk about biblical patriarchy. You want to talk about complementarianism, 
um, in its best form, you're going to get pushback from, from mainstream culture. You're going to get pushback from some even, even liberal Christianity that that's going to go more egalitarian and, and sort of blur the lines, um, between the differences between men and women. Now, what Christianity, uh, from the very beginning puts forth is that men and women are both, uh, equal in dignity, value, and worth. Ontologically, uh, men and women are equal. They are made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made both men and women, yet God designed men and women to operate in different ways, um, to have different roles, different responsibilities, different, like there's a, there's a, a certain disposition, um, that is taken between men and women. Now, what, what people often don't realize is that the new Testament is really like, you know, to, to ancient standards, to ancient sensibilities was really progressive. The way that Jesus interacted with women the fact that Mary, Mary Magdalene, there were women that, that he spent time ministering to, Martha, the way that he interacted with them. Um, he, women were the first ones to see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And so in, in ancient society, that would have been a discredit, like automatically um, for women to be the, the first eyewitness. They, they didn't have the ability to be eyewitnesses yet. In Jesus's new, the new era uh, of the church, uh, women are the first ones to see and observe and they run back and tell the disciples who then go and, and find out for themselves. And so you see all these like straw men thing. And, and again, it, I think that there's a great deal to learn from like the natural world. Like if we were actually students of the way things really work and, and the way, like how things work well, we would find that um, the Bible actually is, is a, an incredibly valuable asset even if we're purely looking at it from a pragmatic perspective, which I don't say Christians don't, we don't look at it purely from a pragmatic perspective, but if, if you're going to listen to and adhere to the way that God designed things um, and structure societies and families and churches um, in this manner, it's going to lead to good things. Um, and so, and one of the good things is human flourishing. Like we're going to see humans becoming what they were actually created to be. And, uh, and so it kind of, it, it, this, this reality, like if you let it work itself out, will show that it, Christianity or the Bible does not endorse this nasty, sinful, you know, stuff that we would condemn. Like we would condemn slavery. We would condemn um, racism. We would condemn sexism. Now there are some things that, that are hard to like, there, there are hard passages to grapple with. Like, I mean, like to think of, of God, um, as the promised land is being handed over to God's people, like they had to kill a lot of people. There were a lot, there were a lot of, uh, tribes that were snuffed out. Now, um, there, there's reasons why that is. And I don't really have time to get into all those, but, but a lot of people look at this and like, oh, genocide, the Bible promotes genocide and we can't be for that yet. At the same time, uh, these oftentimes are the people that are, are for killing, uh, an entire next generation through abortion. And so there's, there's all constantly double standards. And, and then also they're, they're the ones in their minds, they get to determine what is a just, uh, a murder and what's not a just murder yet. They have no standard of justice, which again, gets into some presuppositional stuff, um, which is helpful to, to uh, to wrap your head around as well. And finally here, and I think this is it, um, bringing it home here. He talks about how, uh, people say, well, the Bible, the Bible's only believed by, um, by uneducated rednecks. In fact, that's one of the things that scripture says that the Bible, um, you know, when, when the uh, apostles are, are making their rounds and, and preaching the gospel and, and the Jewish leaders who are highly educated people can see that these were ordinary uneducated men who had been with Jesus. Um, so, so like 
the the scriptures don't necessarily come from the most the smartest people in the world. Although I would argue that the Apostle Paul was one of the most educated and smartest guys in in the world probably at the time. And so it's not like God exclusively uses a bunch of like ordinary uneducated people, but he does both. Um, and, and so even like with King David, King Solomon, like th- these would have been educated men. And at the same time, you have have prophets um, that that were maybe not super educated, not super bright. Um, you know, according to the world standards, but God chose to use them or even, even donkeys and right? God speaking out of donkeys mouths. So, um, God does speak not, not just through, um, educated men, but also uneducated men. But, but there's a misconception that it's only the uneducated rednecks <laughs> who, who believe that. And, and I think that, um, geographically, I think in America that, that seems to be the case where, um, you know, like you go to the coast, go to the big cities and, uh, Christianity is not as dense there as maybe like middle, middle America, the flyover States like, uh, Iowa and Illinois, um, the Bible belt area where there is a, a high density of Bible believing Christian people. Um, but, but this is a total, total, uh, absurdity to think that it's only these uneducated people who, who believe in this stuff. Um, because all throughout history, uh, both modern history and, and, uh, ancient history, some of the, the brightest people on the face of the planet, the smartest, most, most, uh, academically astute people, um, were Christians. So you got, got quotes. I, I, don't, I don't have to read them all, but quotes from many of our presidents, John Quincy Adams, um, Ulysses S. Grant, you got Teddy Roosevelt, you got Woodrow Wilson, you got Calvin Coolidge, you got Harry Truman, you got Ronald Reagan. Th- these guys are all um, making claims about how the scripture is trustworthy and how um, abiding by God's word will actually help our, our nation. And so you have people who are at the top office in our land that are, are saying these things, um, even Abraham Lincoln saying stuff like that. And then you've got a bunch of a- academics who are also in agreement um, in different spheres like physics and nuclear engineering. You've got, you've got biophysics, you've got um, philosophy and science, you've got historians, astrophysicists, you've got all kinds of people um, that are both in, in like these high intellectual areas of work that are also Christians. And so it's not just Christianity is not a, a, a religion for dummies. Um, it can it can stand up to the highest scrutiny, and that's one of the things that we talked about. Uh, I think in the past episode was just the scrutiny that the Bible is placed under, and it's still standing. It's not. It doesn't like it stands for itself. It's defended. It's like that lion that can stand uh, for itself. And and to that end, um, it, it kind of concludes with saying, like, listen, if the Bible's true, why is it that so many smart people don't believe? And one of the things that we have to realize, and I think it's really important in, in sort of like the apologetics end of this conversation, um, believing the Bible is not about smartness. Believing the Bible is a matter of faith. So uh, th- those two things uh, operate on on different wavelengths. Now, faith in the Bible will make you wise, according to Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and, and it's like you, you follow through the Proverbs and, uh, Solomon says to his son, take my words, um, essentially build your life on them. Jesus says the one who builds his life, uh, all my words is like the man who built his house on the rock. And the one who, the foolish man who didn't listen to my words is like the guy who built his house on the stand. There are all kinds of very intellectual people, smart people, bright, brilliant people who are spiritually blind and deaf that are building their house on sand, like from a. Uh, an objective standard of how are they doing in life according to God's standards, not not human standards of wealth and success and accolades, accolades, um, 
but by God's standards of are are is your life well ordered? Are you um, are you a virtuous person? Are you somebody who um, has a, a heart for the orphan and the widow? Are you know like all, all those things that that would say okay, th- this is evidence of faith. This is these are markers of somebody who has has submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They don't have those things, and because they they are not building their life on on the words of Jesus, man, they're they're going to come to a point where all of the smartness, all of all of their wisdom, all of the intellect that they've accumulated through the years is going to be for nothing, because ultimately they've rejected Jesus, um, and so not believing it, uh, you know, is not a matter of intellect. Now, there, there's something about collecting evidence and exploring that I think, you know we ought to help our seeking friends or people, unbelieving friends sort of reckon with the evidence, um, which is, is something that, I mean, these last couple of podcasts is really all about is helping people um, get into the Bible and, and learn to trust the Bible and read the Bible in a way. It's sort of like the the background um, or, or like the underlayment for, for building a foundation uh, of, of faith is to be able to trust the Bible, um, to trust uh, trust the Bible, but then also to verify um, and ask questions and seek, seek understanding. And so, um, intellectuals who don't believe, it's not a matter of, of a lack of intellect. It's a, it's a lack of faith and it's only God who, who grants faith. It's a gift that God gives, um, for we cannot come to him unless we are drawn to him by, by the son. So, um, th- those are a couple things I think as, as we navigate missionally, um, with people who maybe are skeptical of the Bible, who don't believe the Bible, who have questions about the Bible, who maybe, who maybe take it in part, but not in whole. Um, hopefully these are, are pieces of the conversation that'll help you, um, engage as a missionary, but also to give you great confidence in, in the word of God, that, that it is in fact a, the, the solid rock in which we can build our life. It is, it is reliable, um, through all ages, through all times and all cultures, this, this, word of God transcends it all. And, and by the grace of God, um, we can remain faithful to it. We can have a, a deeper appreciation, like that Psalm 119, the way that the, the, um, the psalmist says, I, I love the law. I love the, I love the word of the Lord. Um, Psalm 19, it's better than gold. It's better than a bunch of fine gold. And so that we would have the same, same sort of mentality, sweeter than honey. Um, when it comes to God's word and his appreciation for the scripture. So I do hope this helps you. If you have any questions about this or maybe follow up or maybe what are some some objections uh, of the faith or dealing with the Bible that, that you've run into as you're living life as a missionary, I'd love to hear those. I'd love to talk about them. And maybe we can do another episode um, talking through some of those those ones that were not covered in this book. Again, um, if you want to read into this, I, I recommend it. Easy book to pick up. It's called The Bible Uncomplicated. Um, and so if you want to dive, go go ahead and dive into that. Um, otherwise, we'll continue um, operating on the sure foundation of God's word Sundays as we preach through uh, uh, various texts in the sermon series that we're in on Cultivate uh, as we're wrapping up, moving into Advent. Um, and I hope that uh, this podcast was helpful for you, and I can't wait to worship with you on Sunday. God bless and take care. <laughs>